Good evening, everyone. The way that I want to approach uh, my research this evening is to give an overview of the theoretical grounding of the research and the scope of that research, and then to focus on one small area of that in order to show some of the interesting evidence which emerged of life in early modern England. The title of my research was perhaps a little bit presumptuous, expanding it from TAME, which was the focus of the research, up to the whole country. So, first of all, the circumstances of my research grew out of my involvement in the continuing education program, the weekly classes, one of those serendipitous events where I was talking about domestic furnishings and one of the students said, have you seen the TAME inventories? And that directed me off towards the inventories, a very rich source of evidence, and out of those grew a short piece for Oxoniensia in which I was helped enormously by Adrian as the editor in putting together that piece on furnishings in early 17th century time. So the aims of the research were firstly to gain an insight into the experience of early modern life. I say mostly non-elite because, for reasons I shall briefly explain, it is not possible to claim that the households represented by inventories were, in the true meaning of the word, non-elite, but also to try and develop a theoretical framework for the interpretation of domestic life. So there were two objectives that I had. I wanted to know what life was like, the lived experience in the early modern household, and also to try and understand the way in which the domestic domain operates. In my view, a fascinating domain because it incorporates um, the material structure of the house and its contents, the objects. It incorporates the social group which reside within that dwelling and there is also the conceptual element, the cultural elements which regulate the way in which the unit operates. So to try and develop a theoretical framework. The scope of the research was based largely on the evidence of goods listed in the probate inventories from the peculiar court of the Tame Archdeaconry in the 17th century. They spanned the period from 1598 to 1698. And that is a very rich source. They were suitable for the research because they listed the decedent whose goods were being listed, the occupation of that decedent, they list the particular rooms within the dwelling and the objects which are found in those rooms. 188 inventories I employed and they yielded something over 27,000 objects, so an average of 143 objects per household, but ranging in number from 10 to over 600. Now, I could have used the inventories which came from the Prerogative Court of Canterbury, as well as those which came from the Archdeaconry Court, but those tended to be of a more elite status, gentlemen, rich yeomen, rich merchants, and in order to make the research manageable, I opted to restrict it to the inventories of the peculiar court. Just very briefly, the inventories were a device for assessing the value, part of the value of the estate of the deceased, and they were 
proved the probate was granted by ecclesiastical courts, Henry VIII had retained the role of ecclesiastical courts in granting probate, generally for estates whose movable goods were valued at over five pounds. And the courts in question, the um, church courts, could either be archdeaconry courts, or they could be diocesan courts, or archepiscopal courts, the, the courts of York and Canterbury. For the uh, diocesan courts, would deal with the estates of those who had property beyond one archdeaconry and the prerogative courts generally those that had property beyond one diocese. So you can see that it's only at the local level really of the archdeaconry court that one is looking at the estates of those who were quite localised in their economic interests. And Initially, the study was going to be a comparative study between different parts of the country. This idea was revised down because, I think quite rightly, it was deemed uh, by the research supervisor that I had that a micro-study, looking at one locality in detail, would be more effective. So it looked simply at the inventories from Tame. I just include here uh, an image of part of a tame inventory, John Groom, a joiner, 1624, just to give a sense of the documentary evidence on which this research was based. So, why is this research, why was this research carried out in an archaeological context? The simple answer to that is that archaeologists are principally interested in the relationship between people and things, and that is what the research was looking at. Historical archaeology has developed as a sort of subset of archaeology and being set in a historical period, it employs not only evidence of the material culture, objects, buildings, but also draws in other strands of contemporary evidence which could be written uh, or pictorial. And that is what I did in my research. It was primarily the evidence of the probate inventories, but enriched and enlightened, hopefully, by using written sources, other written sources, and pictorial sources. And the interpretation of the relationship between people and objects needed, in my view, some kind of theoretical basis rather than just to say people relate to things. And that was found in a phenomenological and a structuralist context. Phenomenological drawn from the philosopher Heidegger, principally, and the appreciation, the assertion that the material is at the base of human existence and experience, although frequently unconsciously. In other words, we live in a material world, we operate around objects, but frequently that engagement is not consciously thought, albeit uh, it is fundamental to the way that we experience and the way we live life. And structuralist, drawing uh, largely on the work of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu and his work uh, in North Africa, looking at traditional dwellings and society, and uh, observing that the way that houses were arranged and the objects within the houses were arranged was a very largely a reflection of the values of the society that he was studying. And out of this he drew the idea 
of what he calls practice, um, that we operate around objects and that our actions around objects, what he calls um, habitual actions, constitute a way of living in the world, a way of operating, a way of relating to each other, and in effect constitutes our knowledge of the world. And that this practice is assimilated by succeeding generations. It is the way in which succeeding generations are taught how their world operates. So practice becomes an essential way in which societies replicate themselves. So the theory of practice was central to this study. Another reason why archaeology provided very useful perspectives was that the operation, the conduct of uh, excavation, of recovering objects from the ground, which is the primary occupation of archaeologists, as I've learned through doing a little bit of digging myself, places an absolute paramount importance on the context of objects and their association. Now, this became a very important element in the research, to see the way that things related to other things and to people and their position in space and in time. And that was, I think, something which archaeology uh, gave to this study. So, it sought the study to understand the way in which the domestic group was composed and the way in which it operated. And two other important components, theoretically, were those of affordancy, uh, the work of James Gibson, the idea that the environment provides potential for the affordee, in this case humans, certain materials provide opportunities, they provide for necessities, and of course the affordance of the human environment is not only natural but it is also man-made, and also when human beings engage in actions around objects, they are frequently also structuring their social relationships. So, in their actions around objects, people are acting on each other. There are implications of power within those relationships, within those actions. And through this process, objects themselves come to have agency. They come to have power and influence on people. So, we can say that uh, domestic culture is a combination of materiality, social relationships and concepts and the drawing on it here with the bedding and the um, bed linen but you'll also notice here there is um, seating furniture, uh, eating vessels and so forth and the reason for that I'll explain just in a minute and then parlours, um, again a combination of seating, bed linen, um, table furniture and display storage furniture and um, with a more detailed look at the furnishings of commensality it became clear that eating is not just eating eating was actually something which was uh, altered in its significance, its social connotations, both by location and by the nature of the furnishings that were provided for the commensality. One example is the cupboard. 
Now, on the left we have what is called a court cupboard, and that featured in the inventories, and on the right what is, uh, would be called uh, by furniture historians now a livery cupboard, uh, in the inventories represented by the word cupboard. And I am theorising that the court cupboard and the cupboard simple have very different connotations. The one for the open display of plate, and in fact the word court seems to signify that this is for ceremonial. Uh, The cupboard enclosing the eating and drinking vessels. The one says, you are welcome, please be my guest. The other one is much more about the management and the control of hospitality. The court cupboard is found almost exclusively in the chamber of the house. The cupboard is found almost exclusively in the hall. And whereas the sort of traditional concept of space would seem to indicate that the hall would be where commensality occurred, eating and dining, kitchen, the preparation of food, um, and the chamber for sleeping, in fact, I found that these activities didn't fit into the built structure in the neat way that one might suppose. There was, a, as it were, a very um, loose fit where there was an overlap of these functions into different spaces. So it suggests that although there are a broad range of activities taking place in the household, and that the structure of the house is suggesting as a template to the household this is what you do in these spaces, in fact there is some malleability, there is some uh, adaptability in the way that people act in these different spaces. So the building is not the exact template of actions, there is a variability offered by assemblages of objects. And in brief, looking at the tame households in the 17th century, what emerged was a complex social dynamic which was occurring within these dwellings. Uh, Just to um, average out the inevitable variability between different households, that the hall was indeed the centre of commensality, the kitchen for food preparation and the chamber for retirement, But through the century, the number of built spaces increased. And the reason for this seemed to be that by creating differentiation of space within the dwelling, more spaces, it was thereby possible to create more complex social variations. And so, whereas in a sort of broad analysis, in the early 17th century, the household seems to have been more integrated in terms of its eating, By the later century, it appears that there is quite a distinction between the eating in the hall, the eating in the principal chamber, and the eating in the parlour. And if we we do have contemporary evidence which suggests that entertainment at home, particularly of your neighbours, of your peers, became a significant element of uh, social, domestic social life in the 17th century. Now, this has been commented on, this has been theorised by Matthew Johnson in particular, in his whole notion of the open and the closed house. He relates it to the enclosure of fields at this time, and the development of a kind of mercantile individualism within the household. And indeed, in the tame inventories, by looking at the combinations of objects, the assemblages of objects, it was possible to, at least tentatively, perceive that there, this kind of process was taking place. 
with a shift away from the commensal hall towards a differentiation of eating activities in the hall, the principal chamber and the parlour. And one can actually extend this further, as Johnson does and uh, Macfarlane writing about individualism, into a whole changing mentality that the mercantile community in particular were more wedded to a way of acting in the world which uh, was self-determining, was managerial and perhaps driven in part by their religious affiliations. And it's interesting to note that in Tame in the early 17th century we do have quite a strong Puritan culture. There will be a neat theoretical pathway to follow. However, I think uh, that the evidence which I have deduced from the Tame inventories counsels caution. Um, that nothing is as simple as a nice, neat, all-embracing theory, such as the, the closed house. Tame actually turned out to be an incredibly interesting and pertinent example of a community of this period, because it has traditional elements and it also has elements which are very much of the early modern period. It retained its open field system, very much a collective exercise of agriculture, into the 19th century, but at the same time there is evidence to suggest that its merchants, particularly its agriculturalists, its butchers, were engaging with trade with London merchants uh, by the later 17th century. So it's both growing, becoming part of a national culture, a metropolitan culture, and retaining traditional elements in terms of landholding. In addition, there is evidence, slight evidence, to suggest that there were two cultures which were operating in Tame. In commensality, in the yeoman and husbandman's houses, agriculturalists, there seems to have been more a retention of the idea of a collective household. This can perhaps be deduced from looking at the way in which the hall was furnished, continued to be furnished traditionally, whereas in the mercantile houses, the principal chamber became much more the centre of the householder's commensality. By the end of the century, it was the parlour which had actually become the centre of commensality for the householder, which was, by this time, it would seem to be for a company of peers rather than for the whole household. Just a couple of illustrations which demonstrate the way in which these houses were organised for their social life. This is the house of a widow at the start of the century and uh, illustrates here uh, furniture of commensality in the hall, a cooking hearth and upstairs the um, sleeping furniture but with a table and a chair which suggests some reception of guests slightly away from the, the hall hearth. There are also cheeses and a linen wheel uh, found in this upstairs space. So this is very much uh, a working household. And I should say that the evidence which I haven't covered in this very brief talk does very amply illustrate the nature of uh, life in a tame household, very much the working household. This is the dwelling of a yeoman, again early in the century, but you can see the much greater complexity of use of space in this house. Uh, you have a hall 
which has commensal furnishing. Cooking is taking place in the kitchen, that's quite an early example. Unusually it has uh, table and chairs in the kitchen. And then the upstairs chamber is also being used for reception and entertainment with cupboards, a table and chairs. And you can see the social differentiation within the household with the furnishing, the sleeping furnishing for the householder and his wife, family, and the rather simple furnishing for the servants who also sleep in the same house. So, it appears that the furnishings of households provided a way of exercising new ways of relating, uh, of acting and relating, and that these changes may have been influenced by um, external factors, um, economic and physical, the environment, also social conventions and ideas about the way that you act. And they change the internal configuration of the household. But of course we mustn't forget that the household itself, or the multiple households in a community like TAME, by their actions, by the way that they operated, changed the nature of the external culture, for example, with a change of emphasis from status uh, primarily dictated by relationships within the households, social relationships, to the accumulation of goods. So, in conclusion, I would say that the assemblages of the domestic furnishings in the differentiated spaces in the household provided a template for actions and for relationships within the household. So that whole idea of practice and habitual actions, uh, which one can read from the objects, gives an idea of the way in which people were acting within the household. But interestingly, and I think this particularly in relation to domestic culture and the way in which the domestic domain operates, the assemblages of objects may have been a more adaptable way of introducing new and perhaps contentious modes of behaviour and relationships than the built structure itself. But in turn, buildings may then be altered to reflect the changes which have taken place in the assemblages of objects. So. Those are some, in brief, some of the effects, results of the way in which people act around objects, uh, which I've observed from these inventories. And uh, the research actually has migrated, has moved from uh, a focus on objects to an appreciation of the way in which objects and space, uh, social actions and values are intimately intertwined. Thank you.